Hi, everyone. Uh, officially welcome to Manufacturing Hub. I am Dave. This guy up here is Vlad. We have a really special guest on episode three of ITOT Convergence, Joseph DeVolio. Uh, Joseph, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Dave and Vlad. Great to be here. Looking forward to a great discussion today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today, Joseph. Really appreciate your time. Before we dive into the ITOT convergence, could you give us a bit of a synopsis of your background? How did you get started in uh, manufacturing and automation and what it is that you are doing today? Absolutely. So I started out, I remember in, in grade school, my first sort of electronics experience, I remember was taking a Sega Genesis controller and plugging it to my parents' old Commodore 64 and uh, frying it. And I was like, well, it, it fits, but it, <laughs> evidently it's not electrically compatible. So that's probably what I realized that I should be more in software than, uh, than hardware. Um, but I ended up going to school to do uh, an electrical engineering degree, and I ended up specializing in software. And I remember my first job out of school was working as a system integrator uh, and I had a PLC in front of me and I was learning ladder logic. And I just remember thinking, why can't I just write an if statement? Why do I have to put these XICs and XIOs and OTEs and I have to have a, you know, a, a nested parallel branch. And then, a, and I was like, why can't I just, I just write code. And that was of course, before I both learned that structured text was a thing, um, but also gained an appreciation for, you know, what ladder logic is and the history and, and what it came from. So I was working as a system integrator and I, I very quickly found myself more on the SCADA uh, and above side of things. So I did a lot of implementations specifically uh, with a lot of the Alan Bradley and Rockwell software. Um, sorry, Siemens didn't, wasn't exposed to that until later. Uh, and then eventually came upon Ignition, which as a software person really resonated with me because I was like, oh, I have this this software that can connect to all these devices, but it also supports Python programming, Jython technically, and, mm -hmm. and would be this nice environment for me to, to do all this kind of stuff. And that really opened doors into kind of working my way up the OSI stack, uh, if you will, and the, uh, the ISO 95 stack into MES. And I did a whole bunch of MES implementations uh, focusing on ERP integration, ended up doing a lot of stuff with SAP. And I'd like to say that I'm, I'm not an SAP consultant, but I, I know more about SAP than I, I ever, ever wanted to. Uh, did a lot of that kind of integration, partnering uh, with the company uh, Cepasoft in the Ignition ecosystem to develop uh, a business connector suite, which is still out there and still a great best-in-class means of doing uh, connectivity. And fast forward to today, uh, spun off from uh, doing system integration to uh, being in the same ecosystem in the same space, but with a startup company called Foyer Solutions that really looks at providing managed cloud and hybrid cloud infrastructure for OT systems. And I'll, I'll tell you, when I when I heard the, the topic about ITOT convergence, this is actually a perfect uh, uh, discussion topic for what we're doing right now because we're seeing this conversion, uh, uh, you know, it's been happening since I started in the industry. And I think what, what uh, encapsulates IT and OT in this conversation, at least for me, has, has quite evolved. So that brings me to where I'm at today, building uh, some products uh, and managed services in this uh, in this space. Oh boy, Joseph, I wish I had a notepad, you know, and wrote down all the questions. I think, again, as I always say, we can go in many different directions. Um, very early on, I think like what caught my eye is that you mentioned um, that you had to switch, you know, from maybe the traditional programming that you were taught into ladder logic. I wanted to maybe um, just explore that a little bit very briefly. I, I, do you still think in you know traditional programming or did you switch to ladder logic? Because in my mind, you know, when I program PLCs or I program PLCs, 
I always still go back to C. So I wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, that transition and how do you think uh, when you build software today? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question and I'll, I'll kind of relate it to just uh, speaking languages, right? So if you're a native speaker with one language, I think depending on how long you spend learning a second language, you might always be doing kind of that manual translation. Yeah. Um, but I know, you know, my wife, for example, is multilingual and now she will actually have dreams uh, in English, for example. And so I feel like I never, I never uh, stayed uh, close enough to the PLCs where I started thinking in PLC language, if you will. Um, so C, C++, that was really my mental model. And that continues to be my mental model for languages I work with now, which are sort of from that same, you know, families um, spanning from that. So I never, never quite made the, made the transition. Although, like I said, I, I have had an appreciation for it, especially understanding the history of relay logic and how it's geared toward folks who didn't have a formal computer science or software engineering background. So definitely, definitely appreciate that. Um, curious with, with your 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 answer to that question as well, Vlad, and and, and certainly you, Dave, too. I guess in my perspective, like I said, I still think more in C, right? Because that's ultimately yeah. what I learned in uh, university before being exposed to ladder logic, and I still I still translate in my head back to see what it would be uh, in my case. But I'm always curious, you know, what's the best approach? Is it to learn ladder logic and then being exposed to these higher level languages, as you said, you know, climbing the stack, maybe? or vice versa, learning the languages and then being exposed to PLC. But it's just, it's interesting how different people approach that uh, problem, Dave. Yeah, I, I guess I, I, as I'm sure Vlad knows, and I would imagine most of the people listening, uh, I wasn't necessarily, a, I wasn't a programmer, right? But, but before I got into um, and, and continued to be in, in automation and manufacturing, it was more of, for me, kind of a means to the end. And so when I, I guess when I think about lots of, uh, programming like machines i i guess i learned ladder logic before i learned anything else and i kind of take it back to all of the relays and the timers and i guess my, my technical background is is in aviation um and so i spent a lot of time working on really old hardware what well, well new but very old style hardware and so i i think about it in in some cases in that and i think a, a lot about it more of kind of like object oriented programming of of let's just go drag blocks into places but but that, that's more of like my ideal uh form of the world but as vlad knows I, I also don't do a lot of programming which is probably much better that i don't do it for <laughs> literally everyone whose facility i i have ever been in and especially worked in the last uh, half a dozen years or so yeah there's, there's a uh, comment in chat jane said that she thinks in assembly i think that's a little bit extreme i i've done assembly in university but uh Boy, that's a, a hard one for me. But anyways, uh, Joseph, maybe moving on to, you know, the transition into the higher layers, right? So what was that like? Did you voluntarily make that transition? Were there projects? How did that happen, right? Like your interest with SCADA, MES. Uh, I'm also curious about um, how you kind of transitioned from doing maybe integration work into those higher level systems. Yeah, totally. And I know, you know, it was, I was fortunate enough to be uh, put on projects where that was an opportunity for me. And I remember one in particular was, uh, it was a combination of, I was using, uh, you know, RS Logics 5000 for the PLC program, and then um, RSV32, mm -hmm. uh, which, which is, it, it sounds old to me. I know some folks have been working with software from way before, way before that. Um, but that, 
started to introduce the concept of not just an HMI, if you will, where I'm kind of dragging graphics around, but it had a whole you know programming backend uh, behind it. So um, that was like, oh, I could I could sort of do programming in here. That's that's interesting. Do I want to have a whole bunch of code behind these screens? Is that considered a best practice? Probably not. But it sort of opened my eyes, I think, to what was what was possible. And then it's funny, it was exactly 10 years ago to, uh, well, this year, where I went back and found an email that I had sent to a colleague uh, asking about what's this, what's this ignition platform that uh, I hear people talking about? It looks kind of neat. That was, that was the word that I, that I said was neat. Um, but, but all of a sudden, this, this idea of a, um, let's say, an OTIDE sort of sprung up. And I was like, wow, now this is like a real programming model with a real scripting API, and I have the ability to do that. And I started making a push internally, actually, to start adopting uh, Ignition for projects where we as an integrator, and you guys know a lot of times you're beholden to um, you know, customer preferences, to standards, to vendors that'll bring you into opportunities. But where I had the opportunity, um, I started basically bringing in Ignition and I ended up being the first uh, certified uh, Ignition programmer for uh, the SI that I worked for at the time and kind of became oh. an internal champion for that. So that was that was pretty neat. And it just, I guess from that point on, I never I never really went back. I've still interfaced with PLCs. And I mean, that's a big focus of my what I do today is the data that's generated is coming from from PLCs and DCSs, right? So we have to get at that data. Mm -hmm. It's been less about the control and more about interfacing to it and then bringing it into the world where, frankly, I, I'm just much more much more comfortable and I feel more well-versed in that space. So that's that's kind of how that started out. I'm curious, you know, in your perspective uh, to, again, like maybe making that jump from not necessarily maybe just control systems, but some of the other SCADA platforms that are available to Ignition. Do you think that it's, it's, do you see people making that jump easier? Do you think that there's a, a quite a, of a learning curve? Do you think that it's a lot, um, how does, because I know they have a really good university at the very least and a really good program where you can get certified. So I think they offer a lot of tools to get up to speed, but are you seeing people maybe struggle with it? Do you see people really embrace it? What are your thoughts on uh, getting into Ignition? Yeah, that that's a great question, and I've I've seen I've seen a balance of it for sure. Um, I'll say, for example, for for folks that may not be familiar with it, um, back in the last major release of Ignition, which was 8.0, they released a whole new visualization engine that basically runs in the browser. So it's HTML5 screens, and what that brought with you was a requirement for understanding HTML, CSS, a little bit about JavaScript because that's running in the background. And I know that that, for example, has created a lot of challenges for, let's say, traditional automation folks who are used to working, you know, at a fixed width screen in software mm -hmm. like like USC or in in uh, Wonderware or or something more traditional. And there's a huge learning curve in in doing that right. What I've also seen is that it's also been a door opener for folks who may not traditionally. Uh, be looking at the automation space, but who maybe have a web development background or an IT background or a software background. And from what I've seen in talking with um, some of the folks at IA from the education side, that's actually attracted new folks into automation who may otherwise, you know, may not have, have paid attention to it. So I think it's actually a little bit of both. But if you're coming from a traditional background, you're working with a fixed, uh, you know, fixed ratio, uh, screen resolution and all that, I think it's quite, uh, quite a heavy lift. The inductive university is good. Training uh, courses are pretty good. Um, but of course, there's no substitute for doing actual project work, which I was fortunate enough to be in a position to, to do that. So that's kind of my perspective uh, on, no pun intended, on, uh, on, on perspective at Ignition. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, look, I, I really like what they did, right? Because I think, as you said, it brings people from other disciplines 
I've had a little bit of experience through the iOS platform. So uh, if you use Xcode and you develop like some of the Swift apps, they use a very yep. similar model, you know, like when everything can be resized from different iPhones, different iPads. And I think, I don't know if that's where they got inspired from, but I know a lot of platforms kind of have that same uh, way of creating your graphics and kind of rearranging things on screen. So I could see how it's difficult, you know, if you have experience on the Rockwell tools, but certainly if you come from that background, it can be a lot easier, which is, again, I don't have the stats on that, but it's it's really interesting. Totally. I was going to say, I was going to say, if I, if I can just throw a, a counterpoint to it, and I generally agree with everything Joseph is saying, um, I, I guess Ignition being an IDE is really nice because you can do anything with it, but the downside is you can do anything with it. And then as we move into HTML, it's basically just straight HTML programming, I guess before that, I saw a lot of really ugly ignition systems. Um, after that, I've seen some things that look like websites from 1997. So I, I absolutely agree with Joseph's uh, statement. Is It's a very powerful tool. Um, and I've certainly seen other software engineers, uh, uh, computer engineers, computer scientists make that transition. It makes it easy. I actually know uh, and work with a couple of groups who basically just sketch out what they want the screen to look like and they just hand it over to literal web developers that they have and the web developers do that. Um, I I kind of, as, as an ecosystem as a whole, I'm actually really happy with what I've seen in the last, I don't know, four or five years. Um, I think kind of one of the big ones that I, one of the big kind of software releases that I was impressed with was Siemens WinCCOA, the open architecture. Mm-hmm. They, 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 there are a number of projects, uh, that, uh, a couple of them that I was involved in that got released into the US and that is very clean. Uh, it, it's very clean, very modern, allows you to kind of go program uh, whatever it is you, you'd like. And so I really like that. And I like some of the, the slightly more rigid functions that they have built in. Uh, it helps more traditional folks. I, I know that they've got a uh, unified, I think they call it unified. I have not, I have not personally worked with the Siemens uh, unified. And then I guess, so I'm happy with the direction that, that I've seen a number of systems go to bring in people who aren't going to, well, to bring in people to allow you to make HMI and SCADA and other screens look like it's from, you know, the early 2000s or, or the, the 2020s as opposed to uh, 1994. When I think of uh, when I think of what we're coming away from, I guess my mind always goes back to like the, the wonderware of like the nineties and how it was revolutionary when it came out. But now you look at it literally 30 years later and you wonder how we're still running the things that were, uh, you know, peak 30 years ago. So uh, to, to Joseph's point, a lot of really good opportunities but as we give people more opportunities to, to do other things, it uh, just increases the level of difficulty and the level of skill in order to get something out the door, much less in order to get something good looking out the door. Totally agree. And I'll, I'll echo your comment, Dave, that I think, you know, uh, I haven't worked with WinCC myself, but I've heard good things about it. And it's nice to see a convergence, if you will. Uh, if it, we're going to abuse that word a little bit on this podcast, I think, but kind of this convergence of um, uh, you know, visualizations that all these platforms are moving to um, mm-hmm. alongside 
you know, great power comes uh, great responsibility. So I think we're seeing that as well when you have to support multiple form factors. But again, even something like that is kind of driven by necessity now where I want to be able to pull up data on my phone or on my tablet. And I expect data to be in a format that makes sense for me when I want it, where I want it. And uh, that means you got to design for multiple, you know, multiple form factors. Joseph, you mentioned uh, briefly what you do uh, today, but could you expand a little bit more maybe on 4IR? What kind of solutions do you provide? Maybe what kind of stack do you work with? What's the overall kind of uh, goal of the current company? Yeah, totally. So so we do managed cloud infrastructure. And, and a lot of times people say, well, the cloud, I don't want to touch the cloud. I don't want data leaving my, my four walls. Um, but it sort of speaks to, I think, you know, we talk about ITOT convergence. And I, I remember, again, when I started out to me, that meant we've got ethernet cables, we're plugging into PLCs and we're using, mm -hmm. you know, we're using uh, ethernet IP and, you know, TCP IP or, or, you know, UDP based protocols, as opposed to control net device net and some of those, some of those legacy ones. But now for me, what that really means is taking other uh, technologies and techniques from the IT and the software world, like version control, like offsite backup strategies, like uh, DevOps, if you will, where you have multiple environments and change control and bringing those technologies to the OT space, which has historically kind of not really been there. So uh, containerization is, a, is another big one. So um, what we've basically tried to do is to take these best practices that have been figured out by large IT companies and make those digestible and available to folks in the OT space without them necessarily having to worry about how to do it, but they can still get the benefits from it. So case in point, um, our, we have two managed service products called, one's called Factory Stack, which is sort of our catch-all uh, offering aimed at any manufacturing or energy producing companies. And then we have PharmaStack, which basically builds on Factory Stack and is geared specifically towards pharmaceutical and other life science companies. And we provide you a managed private uh, infrastructure. So it could be a segment of the cloud. It could be something running on an on-prem hybrid edge device in a plant. And we run uh, ignition and uh, I'll say ancillary or sort of um, uh, assistive software alongside of that for you. So you focus on building your application and making what it is that you want to do. And we handle the upkeep of it, the monitoring, the um, uh, the version control, the backups, putting in guardrails, if you will, for best practices, a database, pre-configuring database connections and all that kind of stuff. So giving you all the building blocks and tools you need to run a highly secure a performance solution um, without you having to manage all the underlying uh, plumbing, if you will, uh, yourself. So if that makes sense. And so you do, you mentioned both on-prem or in, in cloud, right? So you can do either deploying on servers that are going to be inside the facility or a cloud-based solution. Yep, exactly gotcha. right. So we can deploy it purely in the cloud and Ignition is uniquely suited. Uh, there's other platforms now as well that, that are, are moving into this space, but um, I remember the the first sort of prototype for what is now the factory stack product was something I was building on top of the uh, Docker container version that Ignition inducted made available for Ignition uh, and running it locally. And it was it was this really nice way for, for folks who, who may or may not know, but containers are a really nice way of packaging up software alongside the dependencies that are needed to run it and being able to deploy that in multiple different environments. So you're able to now take Ignition, sort of um, uh, connect in uh, configuration details and then run it in an environment in the cloud. You can also do it on premise. You can do it on an edge device. You can do it in sort of a, a hybrid uh, cloud environment, which means I've got some big 
you know, industrial server and I've carved off some space on that into which I want to be able to deploy applications and, you know, kind of orchestrate it across multiple VMs and stuff like that. So that really is, you know, kind of how, let's say, factory stack started off and then building in other software that also has uh, similar IT focused uh, technologies that they've been adopting that makes it possible for us to even do this in the first place. Because for, for example, a lot of legacy software, uh, not only does it not support containers, it doesn't have a good way of, let's say, backing it up necessarily, or they have very manual backup processes, or they're running only on Windows when you have to go through, you know, a patch Tuesday and do updates and all this kind of stuff. So the software isn't necessarily geared for doing that kind of thing, whereas software like Ignition um, does do things like that. And Joseph, if I can, I, I guess, ask you to expand just a little bit more. So for someone who's not, I guess, that familiar with the Ignition maybe ecosystem, so something that's going to go on-prem typically is going to be used more of like a SCADA, right? So you can control the lines, the production on the plant floor versus if you're sending data to the cloud, that's going to be more for like an MES type of an application where you're going to do some data analysis. Maybe you're going to be showing this data, you know, to somebody remotely, like, or... Could you paint us a picture of what both of those use cases look like and ultimately maybe a few problems that they may solve over the traditional deployments? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. And I mean, a lot of companies, for example, if I'm a smaller manufacturer, I've got maybe a single site. Uh, historically, you would maybe buy a, a rack server, an industrial PC, install it on site. You'll install your, your SCADA software, your MES software on there. That'll kind of run your plant. Uh, sooner or later, um, that server is going to require, in fact, at all times, it's going to require updates and upgrades. And what we found is a lot of, you know, OT staff uh, don't necessarily have the bandwidth to be able to do that. Um, or it's, it's, you know, you've got Windows XP boxes that are unpatched. And once in a while, you could get away with that because unless somebody plugged in a, a USB stick with ransomware, which which does and, and has happened, by the way, you, you were... Um, you could expect that if your network was air gaps, your your risk was a little bit lower. Nowadays, it's not good enough to just have your data just residing in the plants. Like I mentioned, you've mm -hmm. got folks working from home. You want to be able to access that. So connectivity to higher level systems, whether they're running in a custom, you know, a big enterprise's private data center or in the cloud, becomes uh, really really critical. So the first kind of use case, if you will, is extracting data from these systems and being able to access that outside of the plant in a way that is critically uh, very very secure. Um, and now you take that one step up from, let's say, a small manufacturer or an individual site to, let's say, an enterprise. And now I've got, uh, you know, multiple different sites. Um, maybe I'm a very large enterprise that's had a bunch of M&As and I'm trying to consolidate a lot of different technology platforms, build kind of a unified data model, be able to compare um, my manufacturing data across multiple sites. And I need, you know, kind of an enterprise level system that can do that and be centrally managed, but run locally so that I'm not dependent upon a always up cloud connection to do that. So uh, again, Ignition and similar tools work for cases like that, where I can have basically an edge node, which is gonna allow me to provide my, you know, perform my local control operations locally, but also act as a data conduit using things like store and forward up to a cloud instance where I can have my, uh, you know, my, my cloud database or maybe my data warehouse or my data lake or my analytics tools or my, my Power BI or Tableau visualization tools all running in the cloud. So it solves kind of that problem of saying, hey, I need some level of standardization across all these different sites, but I also can't not control my plants because I lose connectivity to the cloud. I need to have account and I can't lose data, especially if I'm in a regulated industry where 
you know, the FDA is going to require that I'm sampling, you know, certain data points every 15 minutes exactly, for example, right? So, so those are some of the use cases that we're taking care of while not requiring folks to spend time they don't have to manage and maintain and patch and upgrade um, all of that infrastructure at the plant. Hopefully that helps paint, uh, paint a bit of a picture. Yeah, absolutely. And, you, you know, I think there's a lot that goes into that. I, I like the summary, you know, but there's a lot of hardware and software that kind of makes that entire stack possible, right? And certainly if you're interested in this, I will make a, a mental note as well to any listeners who may not be familiar with all the systems to reach out to Joseph. We'll have those links if you're listening to this in audio form, you know, on the drive. It's going to be on manufacturinghub.live, so you can certainly send him a message if you would like to learn more. Because again, I think, you know, we can only cover so much in this short period of time, but there's a lot of technology that can that can help in many different ways. Like, and I can give you one example. I've been to this facility that, again, as you mentioned, for regulatory purposes, needed to store temperatures for a batch process, right? And so they were using a local machine for, you know, very, how to say it, the questionable reasons it would go down, it would get full uh, with data and they would lose the FDA regulated information every other week or so. And so by implementing a solution like you've just described, they can send that data very reliably, they can re review it, they can, you know, then trace it back. So it, it becomes a lot easier in many ways. But no, if you want to um, learn more, certainly reach out to uh, Joseph, but on the IT and OT side, Joseph, I think that you certainly get in many discussions. I'm not going to ask you how heated those discussions get, but I am curious, you know, what's the immediate maybe or some of the reactions that you get on the IT side? Is it, um, is it fear? Are they cautious? Are they concerned about certain specific things, right? Is it cybersecurity that concerns them the most? Is it kind of allowing that conduit of data? Is it not knowing what's coming on the OT side? Like what are some of the initial thoughts when you maybe do an assessment with a client and you propose a solution uh, to them? It's it's a great question, Vlad, and it's, it's kind of funny because my answer has changed to that over the years. And I'll say four or five years ago, this is right when I was working heavily in sort of the SAP integration space like we talked about. Mm -hmm. And that's a very similar use case where we've got plant floor data. We have to connect up to SAP, which is the single source of truth for many companies, the system of record, the financial and accounting system. So that is always, always a, a heavily regulated IT system. And we were having to make the case and continue to do so all the time to say, we need access to the system. We'd have to go through, you know, we have a connector that's certified. Here's how we do it. Here's the interface we use. And so people would kind of come to us being, uh, I don't want to say defensive, but but rightfully, rightfully inquisitive. And then we would be able to answer questions to kind of help them understand why this was okay. Um, and if, and I'll say again, even in that time frame, four or five years ago, if you were to mention the cloud, people would say, I don't want, I don't trust the cloud. I don't trust cloud providers. I don't trust you. I don't trust. And, and funnily enough, um, something that did happen during the pandemic was we had customers that were starting to ask us for this kind of a thing. And, you know, again, it started off with saying, I need access to data. And then it started out saying, well, you know what? I don't really want to you know, drive down to the plants uh, to go maintain this server. I want, I want somebody else to do it for me. So a greater acceptance of kind of managed services. And so we've actually had customers that, you know, historically wouldn't have wanted to touch the cloud with a, with a you know, 39-foot pole are now asking us about it. And what's funny about that too is the technologies that we're using 
So we're talking about version control with Gits. We're talking about uh, CI/CD pipelines for doing deployments. We're talking about uh, having you know dev test and staging environments. These concepts, uh, we, we say these to the IT folks, they actually get it. So they're actually very encouraged by this because, and, and you look at, and I keep coming back to SAP because I spent so much time with that. SAP has been pushing a lot of folks into cloud-hosted solutions. So a lot of manufacturers who are going to run all their OT stuff still on-premise, for example, they're already having their SAP system in the cloud and their IT folks are already involved in that. So mm -hmm. I'm actually seeing a lot more acceptance of this because they're like, oh yeah, we're speaking the same language. You want to connect to our Apache Kafka broker. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We're already we already have a means of of doing this. So it's it's been it's been a surprise, and like I said, it's definitely been a shift in uh, uh, the conversations we've had over the past couple of years, partially driven by the pandemic and digital transformation and everything else in that realm. Um, curious from your guys' perspective, what you've uh, what you've seen as well there, Dave. Yeah, I would say I, I'm I'm kind of laughing at your comment about four or five years ago, Joseph, because I distinctly remember I was at an automation fair. Um, I was sitting, listening, and, and someone basically asked a very similar question uh, right, right to the senior executives um, at uh, at automation fair. And at least one of their answers were, hey, we work in a highly regulated industry. I don't remember if it was pharma or, or some sort of medical or medical device. And they're like, for us, we don't even know if we could, in theory, mirror our data up to the cloud and then be able to to, to use it, if only for internal things. We, we don't even know if we'd have to, if we wouldn't have to go back through uh, re-verifying everything, which is just a, a terrible pain within their systems. And I, I, I remember thinking to myself, you know, if there may be some industries who have extra cause for pause but before moving to the cloud but at some point if you're unwilling to to look at solutions that you can only install via cd-rom you're going to run out of laptops that you can buy that that have cd-rom drives in them right um so I, I think that it, it's been very interesting to to watch as I think it's been very interesting to to watch as things change, and I think that we are absolutely going to continue to see that. I think that there will absolutely be laggards. Like I, I think the, the conversations that we've generally been having all month long is that to a large extent, ITOT convergence has already been determined. Right? Like we are either going to combine the stack we are either going to all be on one team or companies are going to struggle significantly into the future if they are unwilling to to go and utilize these tools but that that is not necessarily what we see in, in many of these facilities so i'm sure 20 30 40% of them are going to be the laggards who are going to only be drug into ITOT convergence, cloud solutions, and other things when their core vendors refuse to to send them CD-ROMs, when, when the core vendors refuse to offer every refuse to offer things that don't include managed services and uh, and offerings to that like. Yeah, you know what's what's funny about that, Dave, is you know we we talk about the cloud, and I think sometimes people will picture it as kind of an all or nothing approach. So I'm gonna, mm -hmm. I'm just gonna have my, you know, my 5G gateways in the plants and everything's gonna run in the cloud. And I, I think that future, maybe that's possible with with six or 7G. I don't think we're anywhere near that yet. Mm -hmm. But what I, what it really is a bit of a spectrum, if you will. And so right now, for example, 
as, as my my uh, my colleague James would say, you know, companies are taking their their tape drive backups down to the bank vault, or maybe maybe they're not. The cloud mm-hmm. and the scalability and the elasticity that you get makes total sense for just doing backups. So you can adopt it in a in a piecemeal way. And again, companies have been doing this with other software, specifically in the IT space, for a very long time. So. You know the, the 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 discussion isn't hey I got to take all my stuff running in the plants and put it all in the cloud. It's can I start to use the cloud for things that the cloud is good at? Things like mm-hmm. backups, things like yep. uh, centralized identity management, things like governance and policies and elasticity and scalability. So if I need to, for example, I want to spin up a dev system to run some tests, do I have to go buy a new physical server with lead times because of the supply chain problems being what they are just to do some testing? Or can I spin something up dynamically, do my testing and then tear it down when I when I don't need it and not have to pay that ongoing cost or, or absorb yeah. a big capital cost? So that's where I think we'll see more and more gradual adoption. And to your point, there will continue to be laggards, I think, um, but I think we'll see that that uh, curve, if you will, shifting more to the right, um, albeit in maybe a piecemeal piecemeal way. Yeah, I was going to make the call. Go ahead, Dave. Go ahead. I, I was going to say, let, let me let me ask the, the follow up on that, Joseph. So, four or five years ago, for for most groups, cloud kind of outside of the realm of consideration. Uh, fast forward to today, kind of post everything that we've gone through with the pandemic. What are those conversations looking like when you're like, hey, I'm Joseph, we offer managed cloud services? I I would imagine that there's some percentage of groups that are like, yes, absolutely, we're, we're on board. Are the are, are the kind of probably large middle? Is there is there as much fight as there was five years ago? How, how are those conversations going? And is it easier to win people over? Yeah, there it's definitely it's definitely easier. And it comes with, you know, kind of the asterisks, if you will. So if we come in and say we offer a cloud service, um, mm-hmm. we have to qualify that. And so again, the, the cloud, besides being a buzzword, it, it it implies a lot of things and suggests a lot of technologies, which maybe aren't, you know, I have a shirt that I, I, I thought about wearing, but I didn't, but it says like there is no cloud, it's just somebody else's computer. Uh so that that <laughs> that, that is I love that shirt. That that is what the cloud is if you will but but alongside the cloud are these concepts of like infrastructure as code for example and so what we're able to do with our platform and other folks are doing this too is that we can have source code that that basically states what my infrastructure needs to look like and that can be the case Mm -hmm. in a cloud but that could also be the case on premise and so my disaster recovery my business continuity strategy can be well you know what because i have all this stuff in source code I can track changes between this and I have the ability to tear down what's at the plant and rebuild it from scratch instead of me having this sort of maybe this this old VM or this old bare metal server that I have to constantly kind of care and feed. So it really it really changes the game. And when we qualify that and we say, hey, we're, we're bringing this managed cloud service to you, it doesn't even have to run in the cloud. We can we can do all of our orchestration and governance from our own, you know, management plane in the in the cloud per se. But your workloads are running locally, your data is not leaving the site. Um, you're getting uh, remote access provided to you if and only if you need it. Um, and and that is a much, I'll say, easier pill to swallow for a lot of folks who, to your point, Dave, otherwise would have maybe been been kind of pushing it away. So so the, the cloud is, is sort of, there's a lot of things that I think come with that definition that we have to qualify. But when we do qualify it, folks are like, oh, yeah, I totally get it. I uh, I definitely like that. Yeah, I was going to so, mention, I guess, like in in my experience, I certainly don't think that we should be on the bleeding edge, you know, when it comes to a lot of these technologies. But I certainly think that there's 
a lot of room to improvement, at least for the larger uh, customers to sort of at least explore the different options, right? And sort of maybe not necessarily migrate their entire infrastructure into the cloud. I don't think that that's even an option, but at the very least start conducting tests and sort of trying smaller applications where they can leverage the cloud in order to see the benefits. And I think like for me, at least in my experience, that has been kind of the tipping point, right? Like once they see that it is secure, it is not as, again, as resource intensive as a local server. It doesn't take, as you said, six months, eight months to arrive. It doesn't require as much maintenance. Um, and again, like in those smaller project wins, they start to implement more and more. But I still see, you know, some reluctance and obviously the, uh, we've always done it this way, comes back fairly, fairly often. Um, but with younger plants, right? Like any plan that has been mm -hmm. started in the last like five, 10 years, I think they, they have a connection to the cloud. They could not have done it otherwise, right? And they see that advantage. They see the ability to remote into their site, to, to view the data and to be a lot more reactive in many ways. And so um, those sites have adopted cloud, uh, remote data a lot more, how to say it, with a lot less reluctance, so. Totally. Uh, I think an example of something too, which is again, it's sort of in, in the realm of cloud, but there's a, there's a, a concept or a, a technology called uh, hyperconverged infrastructure, which is a really big word. But what it means is you're taking your, your computes, which historically would be like a, you know, a PC or, a, or maybe a virtual machine, your networking and your storage, and it all becomes software defined. So I could buy this box, right? And there's a bunch of companies that offer these, 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 you know, HCI infrastructure. And I can basically take my traditional workloads, which maybe ran on, you know, a standalone industrial PC, which again, maybe nobody's patching, or maybe a server in a server rack somewhere, or maybe I've got something on a DIN rail inside of a panel. But I can take these applications as they are, these traditional applications that run on bare metal or run in virtual machines, and I can just consolidate all of those into one box or a, a pair of redundant boxes, for example, for redundancy. But now I've consolidated sort of these single points of failure. And I'm not fundamentally changing the architecture, if you will. I'm not. I'm not having to re-architect these applications to be, you know, cloud native or, or be microservices or any of this kind of stuff. It's also running, you know, in the plant. But it's sort of a gateway, if you will, to adopting these other technologies. And that's something where, again, we've seen a much greater appetite for because it's not as it's not as big and scary as moving my my applications off site but it's an interesting yep. gateway i think into that into that world have you guys seen that or heard from that or looked at companies providing those kind of systems as well it's going to be like companies like uh, like ft like uh, uh stratus for example has boxes there edge devices the cloud providers have you know these these hardware devices like the azure stack edge or the aws snow series where you just lease this hardware for you know I think in um, Azure's case, it's like 500 bucks a month. And then you can just deploy your applications on there. You pay monthly for it. And then if there's a problem, they'll ship you a new one. Or when you're done with it, you kind of ship it back. But it's this sort of semi-managed hardware that you could just move all your applications over to and not have to, again, buy a buy a big server outright and manage it. I'll be honest first and say that I've not seen them in the wild. I've certainly read some of the white papers. I don't know if, uh, Dave, maybe you have some experience with those. I, I have not seen them in the wild personally. I know some people that have worked on the applications, but have not had like in-depth conversations as to what it looks like when they went through the hyperconvergence or, or the hyperscaling. I guess on my side, I think it's really interesting. Um, personally, I think that if we can remove a bunch of the, hey, it's got to be, you know, X, Y, and Z, 
and that is our hardware stack. It's only going to be beneficial for what we are doing as, as an industry and kind of my vision of what I imagine everything is going to look like moving forward. Uh, but but as Vlad knows, it is a very infrequent thing in which I get a group that says, hey, we want to go kind of rip out everything or Dave, let's go help us kind of greenfield the next five or 10 facilities and, uh, and be able to go do that. So I know some people who have worked for very large companies who are at least or at least have been involved in those conversations. Um, I don't know how it's gone. Have, have you been involved in, in one of those, Joseph? Do you have kind of some firsthand experience that you can share without uh, potentially violating NDAs? Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting because we've had some companies that want to do it in a gradual way. And and it's mm -hmm. also, I know with our with our platforms, for example, our initial MVP, if you will, was to say, we're just going to put a little edge device in the plants mm -hmm. inside of a control panel, collect data, and we're going to have everything up in the cloud. Mm -hmm. And one of the first companies we talked to, who was a larger, uh, a larger manufacturing company said, well, well, that's great. You guys can provide this sort of this vertical slice, if you will. But I've got all these legacy applications. And if I can't, if I don't have a strategy for incorporating those into a migration, I can't just, to your point, Dave, I can't just rip and replace all of that. Mm -hmm. These applications have to, to live somewhere. And if I can get, you know, this great uh, version controlling and these great backups for, for this slice of my SCADA application, what about all this other stuff? And so we kind of circled back and said, well, you know what, it's not realistic to our conversation earlier to say, well, we're going to, you know, move everything out of the plants. We're going to put everything in the cloud, but to look for sort of a, a, you know, hybrid, which is what it's called, but also sort of an intermediate step where well, let's start looking at consolidation and let's keep these legacy applications around. And for example, be able to install, you know, agents on these to monitor uptime. So, hey, maybe we don't know the nuances of these applications, but we can tell you if they're accessible or not. We can tell you if they're running or not. We can tell you if the OS that's running on them needs patches and we can manage all and monitor all that centrally and then work with customers on plans to to you know to move up and then of course when these opportunities for capital projects come up or when they have the ability to um you know let's say in our, in our case adopt ignition and maybe um uh you know get rid of a, a an older SCADA platform they can start to adopt more and more of this when they see the benefits of again version control and backups and infrastructure as code and all these things we're able to do um, but but certainly not everybody is there yet, and some companies have said, "Well, I don't want to touch this yet," and that's probably going to be the case for the for the foreseeable future. And we'll see uh, we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I was I going to say so. So, so Ro Rob is in the comments saying that Stratus is utilized in oil and gas mainly for edge collection, edge data collection, MQTT, I think Sparkplug B, and on-site AI and data transformation. So uh, I, I have. I guess I have not done the work myself, but but I, I have heard of similar applications uh, from folks I know, and I think it's I think it's interesting. Um, and like in many cases, I think the oil and gas industry, uh, when they've got a bunch of money, can absolutely help lead towards uh, lead towards kind of what the next generation and the next generation solutions look like. We've got some more comments that I want to read, but first. We've got some people to thank. Uh, so uh, for this, we want to thank Siemens uh, for sponsoring the ITOT Convergence theme and for your continued support of the community. So decisions are made based upon data. Data is the new gold of the 21st century, but most of the data within a factory is lost due to poor connectivity between the different levels of OT and IT. OT and IT are often two different worlds and maybe or maybe not incompletely connected with each other. If you want to be ready for the future, the basis must be set today. 
Siemens totally integrated automation solutions for smart production can help you drive help drive you closer to your digital transformation goals while maintaining a robust industrial cybersecurity system. Learn more today by visiting Siemens.com slash digital hyphen enterprise. That's Siemens.com slash digital hyphen enterprise. We will have that link uh, down below. I think cybersecurity is an important point. And uh, if you guys missed episode 96 with Kyle McMillan, uh, Kyle was actually on uh, telling and talking all about cyber uh, cybersecurity. And especially as we look at putting things in the cloud or, or maybe as we look at doing just about anything, I don't think that cybersecurity has ever been less important and it will certainly be towards the top of, of everyone's important lists um speaking of cybersecurity, uh toby in the comments is saying uh one of the things that she hears right away and that many ot folks don't know uh, about the cloud act cloud architecture it can also be segmented and controlled kind of based upon uh the, the customer needs and she also says um a lot of the pushbacks about not ever being able to do uh, cloud backups is due to, you know, IP speeds and, and explaining how the connectivity is good. Um, and and to, to Joseph's earlier point, I think that, you know, cloud backups are a really good opportunity, even if we just want to throw a, a data diode on there and it's just one way up to the cloud and, you know, it only pulls at, I don't know, midnight or it, we only pull, you know, some slice at during, you know, the, the five, 10 minutes either before or after uh, shift handover. There are lots of good opportunities to go make sure that, uh, that you are backed up because more often than not, if if there's a issue and I don't know, we, we lose code on, on the PLC or, or something along those lines. In, in my mind, it, it's always a like wet cardboard box or bottom filing cabinet uh, bottle bottom filing cabinet drawer that that someone is going to to look for or more reasonably it's you know frantic phone calls to the systems integrator whoever was last in the uh, the plc to say hey do you guys have a backup of this because you know maybe we lost it and you know maybe the uh the, the thumb drive or the cd-rom or whatever that we had copies of uh yeah they went bad because we haven't looked at it in 10 years so uh so we're hoping that you have something uh so i think all of those uh absolutely good points uh sean has got a question actually for Joseph. Uh, he wants to know how you deal with the licensing for the development test production virtual OT servers. I imagine that, that you that, that this is a normal conversation uh, that, that you get to have, Joseph. Yep. No, it's a, it's a great question. I just I wanted to echo to your, your point about, uh, you know, going to an SI to get backups of programs is something we've seen all the time. Uh, Copia is actually a company which you guys might be familiar with that yep. automates some of that, which I'm a big, not affiliated with, but a big fan of. So it's nice to see, again, these IT technologies making their way into um, the OT space. And I mean, version control has been done since, you know, the 70s, if you will, in the IT world. So it's not a it's not a new thing. Um, to the question, it's a it's a great one. So, you know, the 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 core of our current offering with factory stack is built around ignition. Um, and so ignition has uh, basically a two hour free trial when you download it and run it yourself. Um, uh, and so, uh, however, they also offer, which folks maybe not, don't know is they have um, development and test instances. Uh, and those are available at a discount, basically 50% discount off the list price. So if you're, for example, wanting to have, um, a subscription where I want to have, let's say, a production system that's obviously always running, and then I want one or more additional instances that I want to do development work on or testing or staging. If you want those to be what we call long-running instances or long-running environments, then you can get uh, basically discounted licenses for those servers from Inductive. Um, if you want to just, hey, I'm going to 
we could have a whole conversation about version control, but I'm going to, you know, generate a, a new branch of my code to run a quick test, and then I'm going to spin it down, then you can usually get away with the trial. And that is, uh, you know, commercially acceptable, if you will, to, uh, to inductive. Um, and I will say too, with Cloud Edition coming out, which you guys might be, uh, may or may not be aware of, mm -hmm. um, they're also moving to a consumption-based licensing. So depending on how that's deployed, you will basically pay, you know, per hour, if you will, for a license. And then when you're not using it anymore, that'll kind of go away. So that's going to change the discussion a little bit, but currently to our free trial, and then your 50% discount on dev and, and test licenses. Great question. Interesting. I, I will throw out Adam Gluck, uh, Joseph mentioned uh, Copia, Adam yep. Gluck, episode 28. Uh, we actually spent four episodes, uh, 28, 29, 30, and 31, talking all about industrial DevOps. Uh, things have changed a, a, a little bit. DevOps is more of a kind of household name now than it was, I don't know, like a year and a half ago when we had those initial conversations, but absolutely go take a listen to those. Yeah, absolutely. Go take, take a listen to those. If you want to dig into uh, DevOps and, and DevOps for automation. Absolutely. Thanks for the question. Yeah, I guess, um, no, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Again, I, I think, I really think that a lot more manufacturers will start migrating this way. I think that we're going to see more and more deployments um, in the cloud, certainly using ignition i think that other manufacturers again we can maybe not name all of them are, are starting to come out with their own offerings that are going to be more cloud-based right and i think we um also on the license management side as well um but um joseph if i can uh maybe ask you do you have a uh, can you walk us through again like i think we discussed a little bit what the stack typically looks like right so you would be deploying some kind of an edge device that would be used as a funnel what does that typically look like, right? So if you go and assess a factory, do you select the hardware? Do you help them? Again, does that look like an IPC? Is that a server? Is that an Opto22 controller, right? Like what does that look like so you can aggregate ultimately the data, then be able to tunnel that into, uh, into the cloud application? And I'm also curious, you know, again, the dynamic on the IT side, right? Does the IT become then your partner to help you secure sort of like that tunnel, so to speak? What is their involvement in maintaining that edge device is that something that ot typically you know is responsible for is that it like what's you know the delineation between maybe the two yeah that's a that's a great question i'll try to i'll try to unwrap it and maybe you can help you could help guide me in the in the direction <laughs> so we have and the, the reality is that you know we can't have a one-size-fits-all solution for manufacturers because they're because they're, they're so different i mean some of the companies we work with are basically uh, you know a bunch of um you know phds running around in lab coats right so like biotech companies who they don't have it folks on staff they want as much managed as as, as possible and to have all that stuff running in the cloud um usually what we see is there there is um an edge device uh, requirements. Some companies have their own. We found is the easiest for, let's say, smaller workloads is to deploy something like the Opto 22 Groove Epic, um, which is a great hybrid. You guys have had Benson on before, I know, but mm -hmm. it's a great hybrid PLC, uh, industrial PC device. Um, and so as a part of our offering as an option, we let you basically lease those. And then it built into the Epic is uh, an open VPN uh, client. Uh, and server. So we actually have the ability to uh, selectively, you know, and we'll get into the security piece in a second, um, but to, you know, access that controller to do things like firmware upgrades, to do uh, backups of projects on there, and to do configuration 
uh, remotely. And then we will basically manage that as a part of our, our managed service. So that's an option. And that's really good if a customer doesn't have existing PLCs or they want to just throw, you know, an analog or a digital, you know, IO card on there and sample some, some points. It's all kind of in one place. Other companies uh, will have their own existing uh, IT infrastructure. So they've invested in some of these hyper-converged boxes like I talked about, or they've already got an industrial server. And we'll basically ask them to carve off a slice of that that we can then manage and run our applications on. Uh, and so there's no additional capital investment of hardware. Um, they will obviously manage the hardware itself, but we will basically provide, we, we set up similar to what you do with an actual cloud provider, they have these shared responsibility models. So you set up your line of debarkation. We're gonna handle this, you're gonna handle this. That's another option that we have. Um, and, and one that's been more popular, which I was alluding to is some of these, these devices that are basically leased directly from the cloud providers, uh, like an Azure Stack Edge, which um, you know they will pay for that directly to the cloud provider. So they'll pay Microsoft or AWS for that. And then we basically run our stuff on that and, and do it that way. So, so at some level though, again, because we're talking manufacturing, we're talking about uptime being critical. You have some device that's going to allow you to do store and forward. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, this is a really nice uh, feature as well, is depending on your application. So if you're just doing data collection, all you care about is store and forward, that's great. But a lot of companies are running basically distributed SCADA systems. So they may have uh, a recipe system, for example, and they want to be able to have some level of visibility of that you know, in the cloud. And maybe they don't want multiple ignition projects that they have to kind of manage. So what you could also do is basically have a full-blown ignition project that's running on that edge device or on that, that hyper-converged infrastructure or on that server. And ignition in particular is basically aware of uh, connectivity. So if it loses connectivity, you could actually fail over and run locally. So you're never going to be in a situation where I can't, you know, stop my motor or open my valve because I don't have internet connectivity. So you have that mm -hmm. as kind of a, a failover. And then uh, kind of moving up that stack, you need some kind of a secure tunnel uh, into the cloud. So um, we have two options that we support. And of course, the cloud providers have their own, but basically using a VPN uh, is kind of the, the preferred way to go. And the Opto 22 Group Epic, as I mentioned, has an OpenVPN client, so we'll support typically OpenVPN connectivity. What's nice about that, to your guys' point, is that there's usually, it kind of minimizes the interfacing we tend to have to do with IT folks there at the site because they don't have to install or configure anything, right? It's an outbound-only connection that's that comes from the, for the four walls of the plant, goes up to the cloud, which is the piece that, that we manage. Um, we also have the ability to basically set up an IPsec tunnel. Uh, and in those scenarios, that's where we'll be working with the IT folks in, in the plants. And, um, you know, we work with a big enterprise where we work with their IT folks because that was their standard is they want to, they're only going to use, you know, IPsec tunnels. So, and then we set up the, uh, you know, the connection, we, we could figure all the routes to make that kind of happen. And then again, once it gets up to the cloud, that's something that, that we're all managing, but you know, what's important from, I mean, we could have a whole discussion. I'm sure you guys have around security. Um, that's obviously critical. So at, at a very foundational building block level, we make sure that all traffic going into and out of the plant is encrypted first and foremost, um, and that it's transmitted over a secure channel like a VPN, uh, for example. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that gives you kind of a an over an overlay of the land there. And so on that edge device, you mentioned, I guess, a couple of things. So you can certainly run ignition, but you can also run other applications that might be um, of interest, right? And what if, so you said like recipe management, but you could also control locally. Uh, could you paint us a picture, I guess, like what's typically running on those uh, edge devices? It's also 
you run some kind of a MQTT client that you're sending your data upstream. Like what's the, what does that look like? Yeah. So on the Opto 22 group Epic, for example, so that comes basically pre-installed with, uh, with ignition that data up. Um, those are uh, very typical. Um, and then also you have the ability to, um, uh, you know, if you kind of move away from, let's say just that kind of edge device and you have, uh, maybe a server uh, device, or you have a hyperconverged, then you can kind of carve out and say, well, I've got I've got ignition, and that's maybe being managed by 4IR, or I've set it up myself and I'm managing that. But you could also run uh, VMs on there as well. So uh, maybe I've got some legacy software that was already on VMs that I wanted to move over to this, um, or you know, and that could be other SCADA packages or or standalone HMIs that could be. Uh, even like ba like traditional backup software like Factory Talk Asset Center for backing up mm -hmm. you know PLCs. Um, some customers will run like if they're already bought into the version control story, they'll run their um, uh, like version control software like Git uh, mm -hmm. outside of these as well. Um, or if they've got limb systems sometimes, but it tends to be whatever you would see kind of in the OT side, not necessarily IT focused systems. Um, we tend to see those uh, those on there as well. So absolutely. Um, I will let you know, Joseph, uh, Vlad's computer crashed. He will be back uh, in, in a moment. We, we, we can continue th this conversation. Um, I, I have got the recording. Uh, and then hopefully we will be able to uh, to jump back uh, when, when his computer reboots. That That is actually not the thing that uh, th that we were that we were prepared for perhaps i should have not made the joke about uh, about him not having <laughs> enough screens uh to begin with but but no i so i think that 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 is really interesting i guess i have used similar tech stacks uh in, in the past uh yeah so i've used similar tech stacks in the past i'm sure vlad would have like 100 million questions uh for you but but alas i have built kind of similar stacks with that uh well, i guess one one kind of point of conversation that i find interesting is kind of the the choice of edge device, right? Um, and so when when we talk about the the choice of edge device, I I find it interesting, kind of the direction people go. I have certainly gone kind of the the, the full blown PAC PAC controller, and I think that the kind of all of the opto lines are interesting. I think the the Phoenix contact lines are are interesting. I think it allows you to kind of suck in that data, and it's got enough compute on the inside so that we can go build a secure tunnel or or however we want to uh, however we want to go ahead and describe it. I guess kind of on the flip side, I've seen a lot of people use kind of more like industrial ruggedized uh, uh, raspberry pies and things like that. And if we're not going to go to running the, the full blown kind of edge everything on it and the compute on it, I, I've used uh, I I actually uh, really like like the, the so Siemens has a whole series of gateways. They call them the IoT series. Uh, I've done some work on the the two thousand the IoT two thousands. I, I really like the the twenty forties. I think as I was uh, as I was checking uh, to to make sure that they still existed and people could have them in stock. Uh, before I mentioned, I, I saw that there is a new twenty fifty um, that has come out. And when you look at like the the two thousands and twenty forties, you can start to have them at like a couple hundred dollars, which I guess in in my experience is much more. Uh, approachable for, for folks who are looking to kind of go at nodes. Perhaps it, it is kind of the, the entry path um, or for smaller facilities who are like, hey, I'd really like a, a couple of extra sensors. I'd really like to be able to collect a little bit of data that they can do it for a relatively insignificant amount of money, as opposed to having to go to the, uh, having to go to the full-blown um, 
you know, $2,000 or more, depending upon how you have very well equipped some of these, uh, some of these solutions. Absolutely. And I think, I think the IoT gateways you're talking about, I think some of those have MQTT on board as well, which is great, I think for, so. especially these store and forward, you know, kind of data conduit uh, use mm-hmm. cases, which is, which is very typical. So um, I, you may have, you may have missed uh, some of that, Vlad, but I, uh, good, to, good to have you back. Um, Sorry about that. No, I, we were we were just commenting about uh, you know kind of other software that you might run on there, and so we I sort of went through a list. But but for cases where you're just really doing store and forward of data, some of these tiny little edge devices are mm-hmm. are really great for for things like that. Absolutely, and I think when you talk about edge devices for for most uh, OT applications, uh, being able to have some sort of store and forward, kind of however we want to bake it in, be it part of the 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 you know software stack that you buy or be it kind of done on the back end i think that that's very important because again our data on the ot side is is almost exclusively going to be more expensive and more critical th- than the it data and so what well they might just be able to go re- recycle and recycle a lot of times if we have not captured it somewhere and most of the time if if we lose uh, connectivity from from an edge device or something like that, and we haven't uh, appropriately uh, set it up, we are going to to lose all of that. And then, uh, to kind of our earlier points of conversation, it, uh, it it gets potentially very very bad very quickly. Absolutely, and it's a great it's a really quick way to to have folks lose trust with the cloud, right? As soon as you have data loss, then people are going to write it off forever. It's really hard to rebuild that trust. So we definitely want to make sure that that's being avoided in the you know the the tried and to, tried and true solutions that we that that we use. Absolutely, I would say that's the reality though of even local SCADA systems, right? A lot of times, and I've certainly experienced this. And you know, a local deployment might have issues due to let's say poor sensor calibration, and so people very quickly dismiss the system just because it hasn't been tried and true. But um, Joseph, I, I want to ask you, you know, a question on the cloud side. So I certainly know that in software there's a lot of different services that you can take advantage of. I think AWS, if I'm not mistaken, is up to like 500 plus different applications that you can uh, leverage. That sounds right. Do you, think, do you think that in manufacturing, we're even close to taking advantage of, I want to say even a 10%, maybe 10% of those applications, or do you think there's a lot more room to grow? And again, are you seeing maybe any companies that are very open to experimenting, very open to using those tools. I also know that, you know, some, I think it's Google who shut down some of the manufacturing stuff. So what's your general opinion of, you know, what's available in the cloud and what's being utilized uh, in manufacturing specifically? Yeah, that's, that's another great question, Vlad. And, you know, the IoT core from Google is the service that uh, that was shut down. And and, and some of your uh, viewers may know there's a whole website called killedbygoogle.com where it goes through all these different wonderful services like Stadia and everything else that's been shut down by Google over the years. Um, what's interesting, though, is AWS certainly has the largest volume of services. Uh, what we're doing and what I know a lot of other companies are doing is is treating, uh, in, in some sense, treating some of the cloud providers as a bit of a commodity. Um, and so what that means is they're focusing on sort of the building block fundamental services, things like VMs, things like the orchestration, things like the storage, and they're building solutions on top of that. Um, we've certainly done that because you know we've had companies who have existing agreements with cloud providers and will say you know thou shalt run on this on this provider so we've been able to structure our solution to be able to do that by using the more primitive building blocks 
Um, with that said, you look at architecture diagrams from uh, AWS, for example, where, and I've seen a lot of these uh, out there where, you know, there's sort of every every service under the sun is, is present on there. Um, and there are certainly use cases for that. Um, it, you know, in our line of work, we tend to, to try to stick uh, with what's simple because there's fewer points of failure and, and you, we could probably have a whole conversation about this as well. So, um, you know, we try to, we try to focus on the, the fundamental building blocks, and then we build solutions on top of that that are somewhat agnostic from that. Um, I will say that it is interesting to see some of the uh, uh, case studies, for example, that, and again, I'll, I'll use AWS because I think they've got a lot of material in this space around manufacturing where they have products that are specifically geared towards um, doing vision, for example, machine vision. So, and they've got these reference architectures with data pipelines of how to get data and images from the plant floor into these systems. And they're very purpose-built for that. Um, those are great for the cloud providers like, like AWS because there's a, there's a lock-in element to that as well, right? But if we're basically talking about taking applications that we're hosting up there that we want to make highly available to have offsite backups, all this stuff in sort of the OT space, um, we personally haven't leveraged a lot of those. And from the companies we're talking with, a lot, especially big enterprises who are already sort of bought in with the cloud, a lot of them have a multi-cloud strategy and they're kind of taking a similar boat in in some cases. So curious if, if you guys have seen that as well with companies that you're working with or if you've seen them go, let's say, all in on, on a particular particular vendor. So I would say on my side, I generally see companies go commit to, to one cloud, right? But but most of the time they are not committing all of their services to that particular cloud, right? So so most of the time it's, it's AWS or to a lesser extent Azure, or I guess I've worked with a couple of people that the GCP what was absolutely where they wanted to go, but it's mostly yep. that they're using it for storage. They aren't typically running applications well no they aren't typically running mission critical applications or things like that um on the cloud and i think honestly worst case scenario something happened and then they just take it and go through a, a painful migration process for, from you know gcp over to like uh you know an s3 uh on aws so, so kind of to the point where it's more of a commodity than to the point of it is you know mission critical uh to, to everything else and and if that is is where i am kind of at a large enterprise i feel like that is what you have to do to make sure that you're protecting yourself but i almost feel like if if i'm a small startup type group i mean yeah let's go test out to see what amazon can do to help go train my vision system cameras for quality and if we can go feed a whole bunch of pictures into the model and the model can go spit it out and we are going to go save two hundred thousand dollars of of integration and other services yeah let's go for it because worst case scenario this relatively inexpensive um cloud service doesn't work and I'm literally back to to the same point of where I was or perhaps it does work I can download some of this locally and if something were to in theory go away I now have all of this good known data that I can go run up uh, run up on the on the next service but I would say most of most of those large companies uh Google historically having shut down many of my favorite services um and as I migrate further and further out of the, the Google ecosystem um and uh you, you know Know, Microsoft kind of gutted a whole bunch of IoT uh, style positions, and I imagine kind of a bunch of their services. And we all know that AWS just kind of does what, what AWS is, is going to do, and, and it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And so I think that for most people, 
we, we should kind of enjoy it while we have it. And if you are in a position to either go run production models off of it, or if you're in position to go, you know, as like an R and D arm to go kind of take that and be able to leverage that into the future. I think people should absolutely go take those opportunities as opportunities are presented. It's going to help make those services and solutions better. And I think to, to some not insignificant extent, it's going to help, you know, kind of condense that, that IT OT convergence, giving the OT folks more of that kind of IT flavoring, which is almost as important as, as the flip side of the IT folks, understanding that that we need to, to service production, we need to service OT, and, and if the business needs cases, we need to go find a way to give them the tools that they need. Yep. I think you're I think you're spot on, Dave. And I, you know, I'm I'm thinking too about, you know, Vlad, your your question about is there more opportunity for manufacturers to adopt more of the services that the cloud offers? And I think the, the answer is absolutely yes. Um examples of that, you look at manufacturing and obviously there are a number of unique requirements that manufacturing has that that other industries may not. Um, the volume of data is a huge one, and so, for example, you'll see that each cloud provider has its own, uh, you know, proprietary time series database. So AWS has TimeStream, Azure has uh, a couple of them, but Azure Data Explorer is one of them. Um, and so those are areas where I think there's a lot of really nice, powerful capabilities that come from uh, using those managed services without you, for example, having to do a bunch of DBA work yourself. Um, that is a little bit more uh, kind of moves away from that commodity building block stuff that you'll get from just I want to run a managed Postgres or a Postgres compatible database in the cloud, but it can start to give you the ability to take advantage of of other services that the cloud provider offers. So yeah, I, I think we'll see more of more of those kind of uh, use cases getting adopted from companies. Um, but there's there's definitely there's definitely a lot to grow. And, and to today's point, I think we always want to be wary about you know how long is this going to be around for? How how do I, how how deeply do I want to get tied into a proprietary vendor solution when there's other options out there? I'm a big fan of open source, by the way, so I tend to to, to move towards those services because that gives me that that level of flexibility that I wouldn't I wouldn't otherwise have. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess like I was going to mention on my side, uh, I certainly agree with what Dave is saying. I, I think that there's still a lot of, um, how do I say, like a lot of room to grow. And I guess like primarily in my experience, it's because I, I still think that there's somewhat of a, how to say, a disconnect between OT and IT when it comes to at least these services. And so OT is kind of left to manage those infrastructures from what I've seen, right? And so again, coming from that side, there's not, I, I want to say as much knowledge on what the what all the tools are so you're not going to see like an EKS deployment you're not going to see um, you know the CICD pipelines that you would see in uh, in software based uh, companies and so it, it, again from what i've seen they are starting to take advantage of the AWS services primarily the ones that i've worked with uh, but it would be on the basic side right like so they can spin up their own instances uh, for compute they will run uh, again, I've seen them build applications for the uh, e-commerce side, and I've seen really, uh, I want to say like nice tie-ins where a manufacturer is able to run an application in the cloud that uh, would allow them to tie in back to the SCADA. So it's it's kind of a like an ERP MES integration that would also allow you know customers to buy through their portal and then send that all the way down to the machine level to be able to schedule production runs. So th there's some interesting ways, but like I said, it's nowhere near what you would see in software and what you would expect with automated deployments, 
automated code updates and it, it's i think it's still uh it still has a long way to go yep definitely does but very very well said Absolutely. So, so transitioning a bit from from what we are seeing, uh, we want to be cognizant of of everyone's time here. Here, Joseph, uh, we we'd love to to get you to do one of my favorite things, kind of put you on the spot and predict the future. So, we talked a lot about what the last you know five plus years have looked like. We talked about how there have been huge changes. What what do you think ITOT convergence or or what do you think kind of uh, OT services in the cloud is going to look like uh, in another two, three, five years from now? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and and I think you know we, we spoke about this a little bit, but the 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 uh, the rate of adoption is going up exponentially. I would say so. The the days where we had you know kind of the you know an Ethernet cable in both places to you know common protocols to now a lot of these these IT concepts are making their way into OT and OT software is being in the cloud. I think we're going to see that accelerate. Um, we're already having conversations with a lot of other let's say the more traditional vendors. Um, who are, uh, you know, uh, basically in some cases rewriting their software from scratch. So mm -hmm. this isn't going to be built on, you know, Windows Com anymore. This is going to be built on Linux. It's going to be built for being containerized. I'm going to move all of the state outside of the application. I'm going to support uh, configuration and all these great things. So I think we're going to see a huge, uh, you know, influx of um, software in the OT space that is, basically going to be more cloud native or becoming that way. And I think we're going to see lots of companies start to move more and more of their workloads to the cloud, not getting rid of their footprints in the plant by any means altogether, but they're going to start moving more towards them. And they're going to be starting to focus more on using managed services so that they can focus on what they do best and be able to offload all the maintenance and stuff that doesn't help them manufacture and produce better to uh, companies who can do it better and can do it at scale. So I think that's going to be a huge differentiator. You're going to see much thinner IT infrastructure within the plant floors. You're going to see a huge uh, increase in the amount of manufacturing software that is um, able to take advantage of what the cloud does great, like scalability, like high availability. And I think we're going to see noticeable improvements to the bottom line of manufacturers when they start to adopt these technologies. And a lot of the fear about, you know, um, you know, should I should I trust the cloud? Uh, can I can I handle you know disconnected events and all of that? I think it's going to go away. The one that I think that's sort of the optimistic side of me. The one thing that I think we will see, for better or for worse, is uh, there's going to be a lot of companies that are going to try to do it because everybody else is doing it. They're not going to do it right, and we're going to see a huge uh, surge of security, cybersecurity incidents. And given that manufacturing now is the number one sector being targeted um, for you know cybersecurity attacks, I think it's only going to get worse before it gets better. But uh, that that is how these things go, right? There's going to be sort of this this arms race, if you will, in that in that space and. You know, the vendors that are able to do it well, I think will continue to excel. The manufacturers that are doing things the right way and leveraging partners that know what they're doing will, will excel and we'll, we'll probably see some challenges there too. So that's my, that's my ask the eight ball pie in the sky vision for where we'll be in the next few years. I, 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 I really think, like that. I, I agree. I think that those are, are very solid predictions. We, we've had some really, uh, what I imagine are very realistic predictions, um, 
over the course of this. And I, I appreciate you kind of mentioning how there'll be some people who try to do it. And I mean, they'll either fail and lose significant amounts of production, or they will fail, leave themselves wide open for cybersecurity attacks. And what we'll see in kind of new large rounds of folks who have never learned from, we have to go change, you know, PLC passwords, uh, logins for, from admin and password to literally anything else. And it will, uh, will, will go protect us when we accidentally uh, go and expose them to uh, to the open internet. So, uh, but no, I think that th those are, are really good, Joseph. Uh, kind of next question we'd like to ask you is for, for some career advice. Maybe it's an OD person looking to get more involved in the, the cloud services, the cloud space, kind of uh, what, what you did. What, what is your the best career advice uh, you have for them if they're looking to get either high, higher up in that stack or go help kind of through the process of this convergence? Yeah, it's it's funny because I know I took kind of a somewhat, you know, uh, different career path than a lot of folks working my way up through kind of the system integration world. Um, right now, there are programs in school for doing pretty much what it is, what it is that we're doing. Um, however, uh, so if you look for, let's say, a DevOps engineering job or a cloud engineering job, um, a lot of the folks who are kind of applying for those have a, they already have a computing background. So they're coming from a, a Linux admin, sysadmin role, or, uh, you know, Windows administrator, or they know PowerShell, or they're a DBA, and they already have, or, or a network engineer. So they already have this experience that they're kind of building on. So I honestly think these programs are great. The best way to learn a lot of this stuff is to is by doing it. And we're so fortunate to be in a day and age where there's so much great material that is online and freely accessible. Uh, it's hard to get Raspberry Pis these days, but I'll say, for example, I started playing around with you know, running containers on a Raspberry Pi. So the best way to learn all this stuff is by doing it. Um, certifications are great to sort of you know verify that there's no gaps in your knowledge, that the prep work for that is, I think is valuable, but to basically start off in the technology field and to start doing projects like, hey, I wanna, you know, I'm gonna run Home Assistant at home. I'm gonna set up, uh, you know, some containers that are gonna, um, you know, host a photo album for my for my family, or I'm going to figure out how to generate an SSL certificate. But but learning by doing, I think, is the most powerful asset that we kind of have. Um, and uh, that's that's my advice: is is you know get your get your fingers dirty because also as as you guys will know in this space, there's a lot of people that can talk the talk, and there's a lot fewer that can walk the walk. So make sure you're uh, you know what you're doing. And uh, this is the I will say I'm a little bit biased, of course, but I think this is the most exciting. Uh, you know, sub area of our industry to be in right now because the the rate of technology adoption, um, the innovation that's happening is is totally unparalleled. Absolutely, no, I I agree. I think learning by doing is is the best way. It's it's the way that I learn best and, and make sure that I'm able to actually go and and understand. Um, all of that. Uh, so, so thank you for that, Joseph. Uh, next, we, we like to, to ask for, for book recommendations. Uh, I So I used to joke that this was our hashtag not sponsored audible section where, where you would give a book recommendation and Vlad would go download books. Um, I made that joke so many times. Vlad has spent all of his audible uh, credits for like the next four years and and has more than committed that amount of time uh, to, to reading and, and listening to some books. But, but nonetheless, uh, every week we, we get a couple of uh, or a couple of really good book recommendations and we like to, to go share them. So what, what sort of book recommendations do you have for us? Yeah, I have one. And I'm really curious to hear from both of you if you're already familiar with it, because um, it's it's one that that has been has been talked about, but it's incredibly relevant to what it is that we're talking about. Uh, and that is the Phoenix Project. Um, so mm -hmm. I'm seeing I'm seeing a nod. So, yes, I, I think it was recommended a, a while ago. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 
it's so I that's not an original one for you. There's also a follow up, which I, I confess I have not read called Unicorn Project, but it's in a similar vein. Um, what I, I'll say, and, and I'll, that recommendation comes with a bit of an asterisk, but I recommend it to folks who uh, read and enjoyed The Goal, which is kind of a classic manufacturing book. Um, it, it references that book. It's told in a very similar narrative style, which I think is somewhat polarizing. So yep. if you like The Goal, I think you'll like this, but it takes a narrative approach. There's a bunch of stereotypes in there of people and, and things that I'm not really a huge fan of, but the way that it takes a narrative <laughs> approach to um, you know, uh, helping you understand the need for what we're calling DevOps, but this sort of consolidation, which is again very on on topic for what we're talking about, this consolidation of IT uh, folks who would provide ongoing operations and support and you know incident response policies and all that kind of stuff with you know the day to day of of running a business and, and doing development work. So, um, and, and it sort of takes this narrative approach to helping you understand why that's important and how you can be more efficient by working together instead of working in these different silos, just like we see with IT and OT. Um, so that's, that's a, that's a recommendation in terms of uh, being a practitioner though. Um, so mm -hmm. I, uh, so there are, there are books in this space. The DevOps handbook is one that, uh, that folks may have heard the SRE book from Google. I think it's just, I think the URL is SRE.Google. Um, is a great one. It's a little bit more hands-on, built on the experience that Google had, um, you know, doing this kind of stuff at scale. Those are, are great recommendations. Um, and again, there's- Is it still relevant? Sorry to interrupt. I'm curious. I've heard a lot about the, the Google book, but I've uh, I've not committed to it myself. Is it still? Because I know the world of DevOps is changing rather quickly. What are your thoughts on, I don't know if you read it recently or uh, has that changed? Yeah, I think it's interesting because the, the tools and technologies and such are, are changing, but I think the philosophy, and this, this is what people say, what is what is DevOps? DevOps is really, a, it's a philosophy, it's a way of thinking. So I think I think that part is still very, very relevant. Um, mm -hmm. You know, are all companies going to be doing what Google does at Google scale? No, probably not. But the way that they attack some of the challenges in that space and that the way that they offer kind of a more of a handbook or more of an instructional style do this do this do this do this i think it's a very good you know very good guidebook um i will say again with all this with all this you know kind of the resources out there there's no substitute for for, for doing like we've kind of talked about um so you can read the documentation you can read books but then it's by doing that you really start to you know build this mental model that will uh, really solidify that understanding of doing all this kind of stuff. But um, for folks that are interested in the space that will maybe want to get inspired and again, who like the goal, I'd say definitely, definitely check out the Phoenix project. And then um, some of these other books, if you're more of a, uh, you know, a, a practical hands-on person and want some techniques for how to actually do some of this. Um, I think the, again, SRE uh, handbook uh, from Google and the the DevOps uh, handbook are, are good references. Awesome. Appreciate it. Yeah. Amazing. Thank, thank you for that, Joseph. And, and the last question is, is how can our community uh, help you? Uh, are, are you? This is kind of your open invitation uh, to, to let everyone know kind of what you do, what you guys are looking for. If you're looking to have conversations, if you guys are looking for, for clients, if you're looking to, to hire kind of, th this is our opportunity to, uh, to, to help pay you back uh, for coming here and, and sharing your time and your knowledge with us. No, I, I I love it, and I and I appreciate the opportunity. Um, we're I've been saying this with folks we've been talking with. We we're not fighting over slices of a pie. We're really trying to make the pie bigger. Mm -hmm. So you know we're on the the cutting edge to the manufacturing industry. We're kind of on the cutting edge. 
we're taking tried and true best practices from you know the the IT companies of the world, but it's a new and exciting thing for manufacturing. And our biggest thing is to try to find you know like-minded individuals who are not afraid to maybe step outside of their comfort zone a little bit to start you know uh, embracing some of these technologies, playing with them. Um, there's a great community, you know, of, uh, you know, home labbers out there or folks who are doing a lot of this kind of stuff at home who are bringing it to their, their work lives. And I uh, just want to encourage folks to continue to to do that and, and make sure that people aren't, aren't scared of the cloud. Um, and certainly for us, you know, I love talking about this stuff, uh, having conversations about it. If you have, if you're an end user or you're an integrator and you have an interest in this space, we'd love to just have a conversation with you. And, you know, if it makes sense to work together, that's great, but let's, uh, let's, let's try to, uh, change the mindset, if you will, of uh, uh, around around these topics and make it more palatable and and focus on the value that it can bring to companies by adopting it and less on the less on the the fear mongering, if you will. So appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. I love this. And thank you, Joseph. And thank you, everyone else uh, for, for coming and, and hanging out with us. If you guys have made it this far, uh, please go hit hit a follow and subscribe to Manufacturing Hub. If you guys are listening in podcast form, if you guys are watching in video form, hit that subscribe button on Solus PLC. You can follow Joseph and myself and Vlad on LinkedIn. Well, you guys will see that on LinkedIn. And we will go ahead and drop all of those links in the podcast and show notes uh, form everywhere else. Um, until next next week we, we again want to thank everyone uh we'll see everyone soon thank you bye-bye thank you everyone. joseph thank you everyone